Well, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to mark, open them up to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, that'd be page 842 on a blue pew Bible. If you do not have one, we encourage you to pick that up and follow along with us. And, and just before we get going into our passage, I want to talk about um, a few next steps we have uh, coming up. It's, um, it's really been an exciting time here at Grace Church, where even over the last six months, we have just seen a lot of new people uh, been coming here. We feel like God really is doing a mighty work in and amongst us. And so we just want to make sure we're very clear on uh, what are ways to just kind of get uh, assimilated into things, to hear about things, to be involved? What are some next steps? Because uh, when it comes to discipleship at Grace Church, we're not an over-programmed church. Uh, you, you'll notice quickly, we just don't have a lot of programs we want people to get into because we don't just want to fill your calendar with a whole bunch of different things. So we want to be simple. We want to be effective in, in doing a few things really well and providing people a map uh, of what it is to be into a, and grow into a deeper relationship with Christ, knowing that everybody, regardless of who you are, have a next step. We all have a next step in our faith with Christ and in our churches. And so with that said, just a couple we want to highlight that are coming up soon. First is the Discover Grace. Um, if so if you have been coming in the last six months, I've not been to a Discover Grace yet, I would really encourage you to sign up for this. It's Sunday, June 10th. Uh, right after the worship service. It gives you just an in-depth look into who we are, what are the things we're passionate about, what would we love for you to be a part of. And then um, second to just highlight, um, coming off of two baptisms, is a baptism class. Uh, something that we kind of instated this year um, of just to provide a really just one-hour class of, of, again, to go deeper into what does the Bible say about baptism? Is this something that you should be considering if you feel like God is prompting you even after watching Linda and Abu this morning? Uh, that will be June 3rd, two weeks from today. Uh, that's at 9 a.m. Um, right before the worship service. And then finally, thirdly, a membership class. Uh, so perhaps you've been coming to Grace for a while, maybe even years, or perhaps you have been coming just in the last six months and you've been to a Discover Grace. Um, this is an opportunity for you to hear from us why we think church membership is so vital, why we think it's biblical and not just practical. And I think when we say membership and you hear membership, it's probably rare that we're actually talking about the same thing. So this is just an opportunity to hear that out, hear our heart for that. And that is today after the worship service. So even if you did not sign up, we'd encourage you to come join us uh, downstairs. So all three of those are about an hour long and again are just kind of key stops on the map as we prayerfully lead people into deeper discipleship within Grace Church. Well, this morning we move to chapter 7 in the Gospel of Mark. This is a gospel, a book in the Bible that we have begun going through verse by verse um, over four months ago. And in recent weeks, we've had this, these strings of stories and miracles that just clearly distinguish Jesus apart from all others. I mean, unbelievable displays of power that you, um, if you've been around church, have learned about since you were a kid. Things that would not be possible if he were just merely a man. Raising a girl from the dead, feeding thousands of people with some bread rolls, and walking on water. Right? And, and, and today, we're, we're going to see a shift in the storyline because we're once again going to be reminded that there is some significant opposition to Jesus. Not everyone liked him. There, there's this group called the Pharisees, and it's this group in the Bible that it's a name given to the a religious elite, uh, the ones who had high levels of authority amongst the Jews, and these, this group has already had enough of Jesus. 
his teachings, his displays of power, his ability to heal and drive away evil was a threat to the rule and reign. And as we know, still this happens today in every culture across history. When the elite in society get challenged, they don't like it. They don't like it. And so what's happened is in recent um, uh, chapters, we've seen that the Pharisees don't like their authority beginning to be surpassed. And so they've already decided that Jesus has to go. If you recall back in chapter 3, we already read at that point that they are holding counsel together amongst themselves on how to destroy them. Destroy him. But they have a problem. They're in a tough spot. You know why? Because everybody else loves them. They can't just get rid of him because they know it's going to start some riot. And so everybody's amazed by him because he's healing their friends and their relatives. His stock is high, and it's not going to be easy for them to just get rid of him. So now they're on this pathway of just trying to tear him down, trying to drive a wedge between him and the people. And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus and the Pharisees square off once again. But before we read... Let me caution you against thinking that this is just a first century dialogue that has nothing to do with us. Do you ever find yourself in a situation like that? Maybe you have to go to a meeting at work or you're in a text chain with all your friends and you quickly realize this has nothing to do with me. Why am I here? This is such a waste of my time. And then so you start hearing nothing because all you're concerned about is how can I exit this conversation without ticking somebody off? I think often we can listen to these kind of first century debates and, and think the same thing. Like, what does this have to do with us? So even before we read the passage, just trust me when I say this debate and then Jesus' teaching that follows is profoundly relevant. And we will be unpacking one of the most important spiritual issues there is this morning. And I don't say that lightly. So I encourage you to dial in. And, and I don't ask this often, but can I have you all stand as we read the scripture this morning? We're going to have a little bit of a longer passage. We've been sitting a while. So would you join with me as we read? We're going to be Mark 7, reading verses 1 through 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to, to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
Thanks, you can have a seat. There's a lot happening in this passage, a lot to dig into, so we're going to boil this down to three questions. Three questions that will outline our time together this morning. And the first question is, what's the problem with tradition? What's the problem with tradition? So the Pharisees come upon Jesus and his disciples, and they immediately take issue with the fact that some of them are eating with unwashed hands. And believe me, this has everything to do with tradition and nothing to do with hygiene. All right, the Pharisees are not genuinely concerned, like, hey, I think your hands are dirty, you might get sick from that. They have no concern for their health. It is all about the fact that they're not doing what they tell people they need to do. They were concerned with their tradition. And so before we even talk about what's wrong about this, we just need to talk about that word, right, tradition. Tradition in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, traditions can be very good. And everyone, whether they realize it or not, live lives that are shaped by tradition. Both in special elements of your life, but also in the routine. So a couple examples. Um, holidays are times we think a lot about tradition. Uh, most people, not all, but I think most people follow a similar routine around holidays. Uh, on this day, we go see this family. On that day, we have that side of the family over. And then uh, this day, we do both families. And, and then you talk about food and the spread at these holidays. Christmas Eve dinner or Easter brunch or your 4th of July barbecue are typically the same spread year after year. Why? Because it's tradition. There's a lot of tradition wrapped around birthdays, right? The, the person in the family who, who has the birthday, they get to pick the restaurant. Or they pick the homemade meal that everyone will eat. It's tradition to get people gifts. It's tradition to sing before the cake. And on and on we go. Churches, whether we realize it or not, are steeped in tradition. One simple one, our weekly service is Sunday at 10 a.m. That's a tradition. We don't change the day in the week every single time. We don't say, hey, next time, Friday, 5 p.m., worship service. And the next week, Tuesday, 8 p.m. And then the following week, for the real Christians in the room, Saturday, 5 a.m., worship service. <laughs> we will be taking attendance, all right? That, we don't do that. We do Sundays, 10 a.m., we'll be here. It's tradition. Further, I know there are several of you, whether you'd like to admit it or not, who set your alarms yesterday. To wake up and watch the royal wedding. This is incredible. It's estimated that over one billion people were going to watch that yesterday. A royal wedding is an event that is teeming with tradition. And you know why I know this? Because there were some elements yesterday that were not lined up for tradition and people were freaking out about it. Right? You had a gospel choir who sang, stand by me in a way that would give you chills. You had a black pastor stand up and proclaim a stirring theology of love from the Bible. One tweet I read said, the royal family woke up and they thought they were going to a wedding, but they went to church. <laughs> and it was awesome. But greater point being, tradition is not the issue. Not only can they be sentimental, they can also be extremely helpful and orderly and powerfully effective in your lives. So the problem with the Pharisees is not that they had traditions. So what was the problem? The problem is when tradition of men becomes more precious than the commandment of God. 
problem is when tradition of men becomes more precious than the commandment of God. Jesus said as much in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And so this passage really says there's two ways this can happen. First, taking preferences and elevating them to the place of God's commands. That was their first problem, taking personal preferences and elevating them to the place of God's commands. You see, Pharisees had a tradition that all the Jews had to wash their hands, not only wash their hands, but wash them a certain way properly, and that you could not eat unless you washed in that way. And then to not do so was considered on the same level as sinning against God. Now, surely people can wash their hands and be clean before eating. I think we even all agree that's generally a good idea. But forcing people to do it a certain way or else lording over them that it's a sin was an abuse of power. It put their preference and dressed it up like a command of God. It has no scriptural authority. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say you need to wash your hands a certain way or wash your cups and pots and couches a certain way before eating. And, and so that's the first problem, taking personal preference and elevating it. The second problem that Jesus calls them out on was making God's commands optional to satisfy their own preference. So not only are they creating traditions that you're putting on par with God's command, but they're also finding ways to reject God's command in order to put their traditions in their place. And so Jesus just calls them out on it in verses 9 through 13. And his example is that in scripture it says in multiple places, honor your father and mother. It is an explicit, clear command of God. But the Pharisees developed a loophole. In order to justify disobedience and convince themselves that God's commands do not apply to them. It, it sounds crazy in our minds when we read it. Like, that's kind of weird. But, but what happened was that they could, they could tell their father or mother that whatever you would have gained from me is actually Corbin, which means given to God. So I was going to give you these things, but I gave it to God instead. And that allowed them to neglect caring for their parents had no financial responsibility to them, had no care for them, didn't have to do anything to do with them, and it was not a sin against God because this new tradition got put in its place. This is how twisted the Pharisees had become in the first century. Their traditions surpassed the word of God in some areas, and then their traditions nullified the word of God in others. But here's what I want us to just notice. This is not just a first century problem. I want you to hear me. We are just as prone to do both of these things in a number of ways. We can take our preferences, even in spiritual religious things that are not mandated in scripture, and lord over others with it in order to shame them. And even more, I think we can be guilty of the second that we are prone to justify disobeying God with a self-made loophole that we tell ourselves it's okay. Well, I know God's word says this, but in my situation and in my life, it doesn't apply because of blank. Let me give you one personal example where I fell into this. I was in college 
And I've shared a little bit about my story in college, how God really, my junior year, really just turned the ship around. I had gone so far off the deep end, and he just claimed me to myself. And so all of a sudden, I had this very confusing season of my life where I knew God was calling me out of a certain lifestyle and yet wanting to hold on to the benefits of that lifestyle. For me, it was specifically this push and pull when it came to partying and and drinking. And so for a good six months, I'm not kidding, a good six months, maybe longer, I justified getting drunk because it was only when I drank with my friends that they'd be willing to have conversations with me about Jesus. So I'm, I'm serious. I thought, I thought people open up to me when they drink more and they have feelings and they know they're drinking with somebody else who's also drinking. And so I need to drink with them in order to effectively witness to them and build that trust. And you know what? I was sleeping fine at night. I justified that really, really well. And I was doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Rejecting God's command by creating a loophole and telling myself, yeah, but it's okay. In my situation. So let me just say this with confidence this morning. There is no right way to reject God's command. Maybe that's the only thing you need to hear this morning and remember, that there is no right way to do the wrong thing. There is no right way to reject God's commands, and obedience can be really hard. I know it can be really difficult because there are any number of reasons to say, but my situation's like this. But I'm just telling you and imploring you that there is real joy in obeying the word of God, especially when it's hard. And I love how Jesus just turns the tables on the Pharisees and their traditions because you see what he does. He just goes to scripture. He blows up their traditions with scripture. He goes to the prophet of Isaiah and he calls them out for their abuse of tradition because it exposes them to be hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips. They say all the right things. They know all the answers. But their heart is far from me. So in vain they show up to worship again and again, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrites, actors, pretenders, that's what the word really was sourced in first century, that people would wear masks while they were doing role play in theater. And, and so he takes that and he applies that to people who are playing this role as religious and upright and a holy person who everyone would look upon and go, man, that guy or that woman, she, she gets it. But in reality... They have zero regard for God, only for themselves. And so when it comes to the core of who you are, do you love personal tradition more than you love Jesus? This is a question I had to confront over and over and over again in my life. So I want us to search our hearts and just ask ourselves, are there Are there personal preferences that I might use as a weapon to weigh others down and almost threaten them with? And second, are there clear commands in scripture that I reject because I've inserted a personal loophole? Brothers and sisters, is it possible that we are playing the role of upright, holy people on the outside when in reality we're just hypocrites? Pretenders. 
And then, not just individual application, but as a church, do we love tradition more than we love Jesus and one another? Again, tradition is not wrong, it's not bad, but it is tragic when a church can become splintered and disunified from within because people choose to love traditions more than the gospel itself. Just let us not be deceived. Let us not tell ourselves that we're all good when in reality we might be worshiping in vain. Well, Jesus is going to take this dialogue and he's going to use it to teach his disciples even further because he recognizes in this back and forth that this has a deeper layer to it. There's something here that is vital to know. That's why in verse 14 he's going to call his disciples to himself and go, hear me. All of you understand. He, doesn't, he only does that a few times in his ministry, so you know he really wants us to hear this. You need to know this. This is vital. This gets the core of everything. This applies to you. You need to get this, disciples. Get what? Let's read Mark 7, 14 to 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out from of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So the first passage was an insufficient way to become spiritually clean before God. But then the second passage, passage then aims to answer this question. What makes us unclean? Second question in our outline this morning. What makes us unclean? The Pharisees were concerned with cleanliness. The Pharisees were deeming people unclean. And Jesus would say, yes, I agree. But where they disagree, crucially, is the source. And until we agree on what makes us unclean, we cannot know how we can be made clean. So first, Jesus says, well, let me tell you what doesn't make you unclean. And he, this is pretty simple, right? He goes, anything external. There's nothing external outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And so then he releases this smaller crowd, and now he's just with his disciples. And his disciples, after saying this short parable, I love when they do this. They're like, Jesus, man, you just nailed it with that parable. Now, what the heck did that just mean? <laughs> They've done this before. They'll do it again. They'll just be like, Jesus, wow. Now, wait, really? What was that? What are we supposed to do with that? And Jesus chides them for their lack of understanding, but he's just so patient with them. Haven't we seen this week after week with his disciples? Just so patient, so gracious, and he, he reveals to them the deeper meaning once again. And what he says is kind of shocking, especially to the ears of a first century Jewish man or woman. He says, what defiles someone 
is not what goes into them. Because this bodily process that we know, you eat and you digest and you expel, right, to put it nicely, but it never touches the heart. And in doing so, he clarifies and sort of reverses the Mosaic law that had certain foods that were unclean. There's a lot more that could be said about that, but for the sake of time, he simply says, the unclean foods listed in the Old Testament were always meant to point to something. They're always meant to reveal a deeper spiritual meaning. Food is not the problem. Anything external is not the problem. And therefore, Mark adds the comment, Jesus declared all foods clean. We'll come back to that. But for now, he just corrects this pharisaical mindset and tradition that we are deemed unclean because of things outside of us. Things external to us. And so this is a massive, vitally important point. I want you to hear it. Nothing external to us makes us unclean. No exceptions. No buts. Jesus says nothing from the outside will defile. So before we move on, let me just share some major implications to this that I think we really need to hear in the 21st century. This means... The color of one's skin does nothing to devalue anyone. And yet how often it does in our racist world. This means that what you wear or what car you drive or how small your home is should do nothing to define or devalue anyone. And yet how often it does in our materialistic world. This means that your body type or your physical appearance should cause nobody any shame. And yet how often does it does it in our shallow, photoshopped, airbrushed world. How the human race has gotten this so wrong across history, no one should feel shame for external things. Nothing outside of you can deem you unclean. So then if it's not external things, what makes us unclean then? We still haven't answered the question. Until verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man. Maybe one of the most important verses in your Bible to understand. For from within, out of the heart of man. Ask yourself a question. What's really wrong with the world? Jeff, I heard him praying about some of the things that happened this past week even. And it's like, that's, not, that's just like normal now. What's really wrong with the world? What's been the most significant issue in the world across history? Why have people in every people group, in every culture, in every generation had conflict with one another? Why are there broken relationships? Why are there power struggles? Why are there wars? We are unclean, but the problem is not external. Jesus says it's actually worse than that. It's within us. We're the problem. People, me, I'm the problem, you're the problem, and we can't blame shift like Adam and Eve did in the first sin. We can't say, well, it was somebody else's fault. It was something out there. No, Jesus says it's in here. Sin is what is really wrong with the world, and every problem finds its source in sin, and every human heart has a root of human sin. We don't become defiled because of other people. We are first defiled by ourselves. The Bible says we are born with a sin nature, and that, that doesn't get, that, that, that's not very popular nowadays. 
that the reality that we don't become clean, unclean later. I, I got two little kids that the world's not going to ruin them. They can't blame the world when they grow up. Despite even how bad and evil the world can be, we are born unclean. Jesus does not list every kind of evil or sin here, but he gives us a pretty hearty list, doesn't he? He could have just said sin, but no, he says, no, let, let me list some of these out for us. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. You're like, Jesus, make it stop. He's like, no, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Those are 13 things, and all of them manifest themselves in behavior that work from the inside out. Do you know what that means? We can't blame other people for those. We're all guilty. And this sin nature produces a stain that cannot be removed no, mar- no matter how hard we scrub or how hard we wash or how properly the Pharisees clean themselves before they eat because external actions can do nothing to clean internal guilt. It never touches the heart. Praise God, our passage does not end there. We're going to close by tying these two passages together and by doing so, seek to answer the third and final question, one that I'm hoping you're just thirsty for right now. And the question is, well, then how can we be made clean? The passage presents us with two ways. Two ways you can try. Two ways to go about it. The first is horrifically wrong. And the second is gloriously right. And they represent the only two ways that all of mankind have across history have tried. First, you could declare yourself clean. This is the method of the Pharisees. They, they had long-standing, detailed and specific traditions to which they held that made them say, we're good. We're clean. We've figured it out. Because since they thought it was external things that made them unclean, it would be natural to think that be external actions, preventative actions, and just right living that would make them clean. And so that's the mindset that, that we must and can declare ourselves clean. And listen, this is the majority view of the world. And it has an endless amount of versions and religions, both that include God and both that without God. But at its core... This worldview says we will be made right and we will prove ourselves worthy to God by our actions. I want to throw a quote by Tim Keller up on the screen. He speaks about it like this. We have a deep sense that we've got to hide our true self or at least control what other people know about us. Secretly, we feel that we aren't acceptable. That we have to prove ourselves and to ourselves and other people that we're worthy, lovable, and valuable. This is the majority view in the world. Even in our culture. And the scary part is that there are many who would outwardly define themselves as Christians, as Christ followers, but inwardly they're relying on their own ability to just be good enough. A few years ago, sociologist Christian Smith came up with a phrase that he called moralistic therapeutic deism. 
This was a name that he gave to define the majority view of people in America, whether or not they would even claim that, that this is the way people live. This is the biggest religion in America, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here's its five-part doctrine. We're going to have it on the screen. Number one, a God exists and watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be nice, fair, and good to each other. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is the biggest religion in America right now. It's providential that even in Linda's story and sharing her, uh, her walk that grew up in, in, in Catholic church and was good Catholic. And it's not just a Catholic thing. This could be a Protestant thing just the same. And, and, and faithful going week after week and, and very understanding about morals and values. And, but the, at the bottom of the barrel, thinking and living, good people go to heaven when they die. And I'm good. So I'm fine. They would never describe themselves as Pharisees, but at its core, it's the same issue that these Pharisees are having. The thought that we control our own destiny, that we have what it takes to be good, and therefore we can declare ourselves clean by our actions. This view, this pathway, it leads to eternal separation from God. And it's horrifying. And wide is the road that leads to destruction. So we, we have a serious problem here, don't we? We've seen in our text this morning that we're, we're not made unclean by external things, but internal. From, from having bad hearts. And we all have them. And then we just learn that we cannot declare ourselves clean. So where does that leave us? Are we just completely hopeless? It leads to one place, and one place only. Number two... We must be declared clean by another. And this is where we return to maybe the most overlooked line in the passage of this morning. It was a side note. It was in parentheses. It was an editorial comment made by Mark at the end of verse 19. Thus, he declared all foods clean. It's an editorial comment, meaning where gospel authors will insert a clarifier, right? So they're telling this story, but then they'll throw in these lines just to clarify to the reader. Of all the gospel writers, Mark does it the least by far. We have barely seen it, and we're in chapter 7. Which means that when he does do it, like right here, we should especially take note. Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus said, fellas, food has always been clean. As if the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law was just being abolished. As he was saying, no, God was just kidding. That wasn't really a thing. But rather, he says, he declared all foods clean. Because the Old Testament law has now been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in doing so, the food laws were necessary at the time. But they were no longer because they always pointed to him. And him declaring something that was unclean to now be clean is this physical act that is meant to convey to us a deeper truth. What is that deeper truth? It's the gospel itself. When Jesus willingly went to the cross 
to die for our sin, he took our uncleanliness. He took our shame. He took our defilement from within in order that we might be forgiven and receive the righteousness of God. Purely by his grace. Purely out of his great love for us. It's called the great exchange. Our uncleanliness for his cleanliness. Our sin for his perfection. And when we confess our sin and we put our faith and full trust in Jesus Christ, we too are declared clean. We are declared righteous. Not that we always have been, but now we are declared clean, restored to right standing with our Father. The Bible says we're given new hearts. The heart of Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise God for a Savior who declares us clean by his work. And praise God for how he calls us to now live lives of holiness, which we can now do by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We are not slaves to sin any longer. We just saw it pictured in baptism. You die to sin. You emerge to new life. And what comes out from within you now in Christ is the fruit of the Spirit. Murder has been replaced by love. Envy replaced by joy. Evil thoughts replaced by peace. Coveting replaced by patience. Deceit replaced by kindness. Pride replaced by goodness. Foolishness replaced by faithfulness. Wickedness replaced by gentleness. Sexual immorality replaced by self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Let's pray.